Welcome, everybody, to the latest edition of the Pound for Pound podcast here on the Fight Game Media Network. This is your host, the OG, the original great Rob Silver. And today we've got a packed show. I'm going to give a rundown of the three big fights from this past weekend, which occurred uh, Saturday night, December 3rd. Then I will go on to another Q&A, an extended Q&A session, as I have questions from three of my best listeners. And then I will finish the show with my historical overview of my 13th greatest fighter of the last 45 years, Manos de Piedras, Roberto Duran, Roberto Duran. But first, let's talk about Saturday night, December third and the three major fights first we go to great britain and we see the overrated daniel dubois daniel dubois has no business being any type of champion interim champion regular champion he's not that good he got exposed by joe joyce then he gets gifted a WBO title, I mean, WBA title, I mean, it doesn't matter. I get the the sanctioned body wrong. They're all criminal. They're all crooked. They're all wicked. How the hell is this guy a world champion when he got exposed by Joe Joyce? He's never beaten anybody significant in the heavyweight division. And Saturday night, he faces Kevin Lorena from South Africa. And in the very first round, he gets dropped three times against a guy who (laughs) is middle of the road at best. Now, Dubois looked like he injured his ankle, and the first knockdown looked legit. The next two knockdowns was because he was on an unsteady ankle. Second round, Dubois, who's who's a brawler, moved around and got his ankle back to working and in the third round he was moving he was moving around again but looked like he was getting healthy then caught Lorena with incredible uppercuts and the referee stopped the fight at the end of the third round come from behind win by Dubois who struggled against a middle of the road heavyweight when Daniel Dubois steps up and fights another elite heavyweight like he did against Joe Joyce, whether it be Jared Anderson, whether it be Fury Wilder Usyk, he's getting put out to pasture. He's not that good. Get him out of here. Overrated. Then we go to the main event in England. Tyson Fury versus Derek Chisora in a third fight that had no business being made. This was a utter mismatch. This was criminal to watch. This was reminiscent of 40 years ago when Larry Holmes defended his world heavyweight title, the WBC version, against Randall Tex Cobb. And he gave Cobb such a beating that Howard Cosell quit announcing boxing. He retired from boxing because he got tired of seeing fights like this sanctioned. Randall Tex Cobb had no business being in the ring against Larry Holmes that night. My father and I watched that. My father's like, Randall Cobb couldn't beat Larry Holmes. 
if Larry Holmes had both hands tied behind his back. Same thing Sunday, Saturday night. Derek Chisora, who's taken brutal beating after brutal beating the last decade, had no business getting a shot at the number one heavyweight champion in the world. And yet, this is why I always said Howard Cosell was the greatest boxing announcer of all time. Hank called it like I saw it. Let me tell you something. Randall Cobb's getting his ass kicked. They need to stop this fight. Why? Why is this fight continuing? This is an utter disgrace. It's a black eye on the sport of boxing. Howard Cosell had the balls to tell ABC, the WBC, Don King, that this was a disgrace. I'm taking my microphone, and I'm going home. And other than the 1984 Olympics, when he announced the boxing at the 84 Olympics, he never did another fight for the rest of his storied, legendary announcing career. Well... The ESPN buffoons, the ESPN nuthuggers, the ESPN, I'll do whatever Bob Arum tells me to do, including Andre Ward, who I've lost a ton of respect for as a color analyst. Tim Bradley does whatever the fuck Bob Arum wants me to say. He's a he's a coon. He's a fucking coon, Tim Bradley. And Joe Tessitore is just happy to get a paycheck because, oh, everything's the greatest fight that ever happened. And Mark Kriegel is the worst boxing analyst in the history of boxing, not named Chris Mannix. None of these clowns were against this fight. When the fight started, they were talking about, oh, Derek Chisora, he he that type of underdog that you want to root for. And they didn't criticize Tyson Fury for picking a fight. Tyson Fury's last two fights were against guys that had no shot at beating him. Now look, I'll be the first to admit Tyson Fury's the best heavyweight on the planet. He's a first battle hall of famer. He's the best heavyweight of this era. I am not going to argue that. But call a spade a spade. Tyson Fury fighting Derek Chisora? Why? There's no... And Tyson Fury beat up Derek Chisora in the same fashion Larry Holmes beat up Randall Cobb. He did what he wanted to. This was criminal to watch. Chisora took a beating. Lord knows the after uh, effects that's going to happen with Chisora down the line. With Randall Te- Tex Cobb, he suffered from severe CTE after what looked to be a budding acting career had to be cut short when he had dementia in his early 40s. Derek Chisora had no business being in the ring with Tyson Fury Saturday night. He already got destroyed twice. We didn't need to see it a third time. Boxing has got to stop sanctioning these type of fights. It is ridiculous, and yet... Am I the only one with a microphone that is criticizing this fight from happening? The media is not criticizing Bob Arum. ESPN is like, oh, the only thing they did was, oh, they, you know, sometimes, you know, sometimes you got to save a fighter from himself. Yeah, you know how you save a fighter from himself? By not sanctioning this garbage. Finally, the referee stopped the fight in the 10th round. Fury wins expectedly. He won every second of every minute of every round. This was a disgrace. A black eye on the sport of boxing. Just like 40 years ago, almost 40 years to the day, 
when Larry Holmes beat up a heavily undermanned Randall Tex Cobb. Randall Tex Cobb had no business fighting Larry Holmes, and Derek Chisor had no f- business fighting Tyson Fury. Let's stop the bullshit. And now, Tyson Fury, I want to see you fight Usyk or Joshua next. Let's stop with these one-sided uh, uh, exhibitions, these one-sided fights that you're in. You wasn't losing to Dillian White. Now, look. I understand Dillian White was a mandatory contender, and you know what? Fury, after a couple of incredible wars with Deontay Wilder, he deserved to have a fight against Dillian White. So let me put that to the side, all right? Plus, Dillian White was a mandatory number one contender for the We Be Crooked WBC drug cartel organization run by Mauricio Suleiman, where Mexican drug cartels are funneling uh, their, their cocaine money through that fucking organization, right? Derek Chisora fight should have never happened. This was criminal. It should have never been sanctioned as a world title fight. And it should have never happened, period. Period. Whatever Chisora got paid for on Saturday night, I hope it's worth it. I hope he could say his name in a couple of years because he took such a beating Saturday night that the stuttering will probably happen real quick. Now on uh, to the to the best fight of the of the weekend and one of the best fights of the year and a round of the year candidate in a fight that had that that had ebbs and flows and that's the third meeting between Juan Francisco Estrada and Roman Chocolatito Gonzalez for the WBC Super Flyweight Championship. I predicted Estrada would win by decision and I was right but I had to sweat it out. First six rounds, I had Estrada winning. I had Estrada winning the first six rounds because he boxed brilliantly. He was moving. He was being the counterpuncher, reminiscent of Juan Manuel Marquez. I've always said that Estrada reminded me of Juan Manuel Marquez. Beautiful movement. The right hand was landing at will. Chocolatito's defense was gone. First six rounds, Chocolatito looked like he was shot. He reminded me of the night so Ring, Ring Versailles almost killed him with that beautiful right cross. But then, now beginning the sixth round, Chocolatito made it close, and I thought that Estrada eked out the sixth round, but a lot of guys gave Chocolatito the sixth round. But from round seven through 11, Chocolatito upped up the pressure, and it looked like vintage, chocolate, vintage Chocolatito going to the body, landing combinations. He was still getting hit, but he was outlanding Estrada, who, because of all the movement from the first six rounds, and plus he's older, he's in his early 30s now, and Chocolatito in his mid-30s, Chocolatito took advantage, had Estrada up against the ropes, and dominated rounds 7 through 11. So going into the 12th and final round, I had Estrada winning by one point. And in the 12th round, Estrada, knowing that the fight was on the line, knowing that he could lose the rubber match because it's one win apiece. 
He puts on an incredible display of counter-punching and combination punching in the 12th round to easily win the 12th round and win the fight on my scorecard 115-113. Chocolatito gave it his all. The 12th round, in my opinion, is the round of the year for 2022. An incredible round to a very good fight. Lots of ebb and flows. Estrada wins by majority decision. And... On my scorecard, 115-113, I called it just like I thought it would happen. And there's a question as far as the Q&A that's got coming up. One of the questions involves Estrada, and I'll bring this up later, but I'll just, I'll just briefly touch on it now. Who should Juan Francisco Estrada fight next? That will be my answer when I get to the Q&A session. Um. As far as Chocolatito goes, I want to see him retire. And he's also part of a question later on by one of the listeners that I will uh, talk about. But Chocolatito took an immense amount of punishment in this fight. He's taken a lot of punishment the last five years, period. His two fights with, with Sorong Vasai, his last two fights with Estrada. He should seriously consider retiring. He's a little guy and on a little head, little body. He's taken a lot of punishment. Great fighter. First ballot Hall of Famer. One of the greatest Latin fighters of all time. One of the greatest Nicaraguan fighters of all time. And later on, I'll tell you where I rank him among the greatest Nicaraguan fighters of all time. It's time for Chocolatito to retire. Please, somebody tell him. Let's forget about it. I know this talks of a four fight. Even if he wins, it's not like he's going to knock out Estrada. These guys can't knock each other out. These guys are going to go 12 rounds, 12 rounds, 12 rounds. It take a lot of punishment. All right. Now, we've got coming up this weekend, we've got Terrence Crawford against David Avanasian, and we've got Sander Martin versus Teofimo Lopez. I've got Crawford wiping the mat with Avenician. I'm going to predict a seventh round knockout by Terrence Crawford. Only way David Avenician can win that fight is if he shoots Crawford. This is a this is a mismatch. Avenician is not a pimple on Crawford's ass. Crawford by seventh round KO. And as far as Lopez Sandor Martin goes, Sandor Martin is a cagey boxer, so he's going to give Tio some difficulty. I see Lopez winning a close decision. Him pulling it out late in, in, in the fight to win in front of his hometown in Madison Square Garden. So, now that those fights are out of the way, those predictions are out of the way, let's get to the Q&A session. And we've got some great questions. I want to first go to, let me get this right up here. All right, here we go. Ask Rob Silver. Okay. From my buddy uh, Malcolm, Big Malcolm X Play Cousin on Twitter. He asked, is it time for Estrada versus Bam Rodriguez? Yes, Malcolm, it's time. It's time to pass the torch because as good as Estrada still is, he cannot keep up with the combination punching and the youthful aggression of Jesse Bam Rodriguez. Bam Rodriguez, I predict, if they fight, and yes, the time is right for them to fight, he will retire Estrada. The, the fight, they need to fight. But I got a feeling that Estrada is going to try to lure Chocolatito into a fourth fight. And 
Malcolm, I I think, gun to my head, you'll see a fourth fight between Chocolatito and Estrada before you see Estrada versus Bam Rodriguez. Period. But yes, the time is right. Let's do this. Now, Malcolm also asked, I was watching an old Jacob Baby Jake Malala fight. And gave me an idea. And gave me an idea. Give me a top five Mighty Mouses, undersized champions. Baby Jake never got the recognition he deserved. Never got the high-profile fights he deserved. Despite the fact, at the age of 35, on national television, July of 1997, on the undercard to Danny Romero versus Johnny Tapia in a unification 115-pound fight. Baby Jake fought Michael Carbohall for a bogus world title at 108 pounds. Michael Carbohall came in as the name fighter, and Baby Jake beat the shit out of Michael Carbohall. Beat him from pillar to post, stopped him, and you never saw Baby Jake on TV again, even though he fought another five years. Baby Jake is my fifth undersized great fighter I've ever seen at four foot ten. He's my number five. Baby Jake should have had high profile fights. I, matter of fact, you know what? He wanted to fight. This was in ninety seven. You could have matched him up against the great Mexican fighter, uh, Chick, uh, well, Chiquita retired by then. Chiquita Gonzalez was retired by then. Uh, what's my man's name? God damn, early signs of the med- Ricardo Finito Lopez. Now, Lopez would have had him by seven inches because Lopez was 5'5", five, five, and Lopez could have moved up to 108 and fought Baby Jake. And while Lopez would have probably won, Baby Jake would have gave Lopez hell because of his aggressive style. Baby Jake never got another major fight after beating the hell out of Michael Carbajal, and he deserved to get another major fight. Number five, Baby Jake at four foot ten. My number four undersized great fighter, Donnie Nietes. Top five Filipino fighter of all time. You definitely got to put Manny Pacquiao, Nonito Donaire, and Flash Elordi up there, top three. Nietes is my number four greatest Filipino fighter of all time. If I had a vote, I'd vote him into the International Box Hall of Fame once he's eligible to go in. He's had an incredible career, incredible career. Just suffered after, man, I don't know how many years of boxing, just suffered his first loss. He's had a tremendous career. Great counter, one of the best counter punches of this era. Beautiful boxer, two punches and punches. Five foot three, my number four undersized fighter of all time. My number three is longtime WBO 105-pound champion, Ivan Calderon. Ivan Calderon was a great fighter. One of the best Puerto Rican, top ten Puerto Rican fighter of all time. You can make an argument for number six or number seven. I've done those rundowns before earlier. I'm not going to do it again. But Ivan Calderon was like... Because he was a softball Early in his career Up until he lost a step He reminded me of a miniature Pee Wee Whitaker And that's kind of crazy to say Being that uh, Sweet Pee Whitaker was 5 foot 5 He reminded me of Sweet Pee Whitaker May call him Pee Wee Whitaker Yvonne Calderon At 5 feet tall He was hard to hit With a beautiful head movement Beautiful counter puncher Major miss all night Beautiful right jab Yvonne Calderon Numero threats Number 3
My number two undersized fighter of all time was Chiquita Gonzalez, another five foot fighter. And his claim to fame, he beat Ricardo Carbohol, I mean, Michael Carbohol, two out of three times in three great in, in the trilogy. And he was a long time, 108 pound champion. And he beat some great fighters. Number two, and he's in the International Boxing Hall of Fame. Number one, my greatest undersized Mighty Mouse fighter was longtime flyweight champion of the world, Miguel Canto, one of the greatest Mexican stylists of all time. Ladies and gentlemen, if you never heard of Miguel Canto, go to YouTube. He was the ultimate 15-round fighter. He was as fresh in the 15th round as he was in the first round. And he was a stylist. Made you miss all night long. And he fought everybody in his era. So, Baby Jake, number five. Donnie Nietzsche, number four. Ivan Caderon, number three. Chiquita Gonzalez, number two. Miguel Canto, numero uno, number one. Great questions again, my Malcolm man. Just keep bringing them to me, baby, because you make this mind you make this, you make this mind think. All right, now on to uh, Rafael Toro. Rafael, long time listener. He's got two questions. Okay, we had a debate at work. Wilfredo Vasquez Sr. versus Orlando Salido. Who takes it? Orlando Salido was a nice journeyman. All right, got a bunch of losses. Gave hell. Yeah, he beat one. Uh, he beat Wama two times in two great fights. Wama wasn't as great a fighter as Wilfredo Vasquez. Wilfredo Vasquez had a left hook from hell, three-division world champion. If Salido and Vasquez fought at featherweight, Vasquez would put Salido in the hospital. Now you're saying, oh, well, Salido beat Loma. That was Loma's first professional fight, and Salido cheated his way to victory, was real dirty. Yeah, he's not going to do that against Vasquez because Vasquez was a much Bigger puncher than Lomachenko. Vasquez knocks out Salido, eighth, ninth round, period. It would be a tough fight up until that time. But Salido was one of them Mexican brawlers that beat you with guile, but no defense. He'd outwork you. Like he did with Wanma, because Wama was hitting him at will the first two fights until Wama uh, got tired, stamina sapped, and then Salido put him to sleep twice. Okay, another question by Rafael Toro. Prime versus prime at welterweight. What if Floyd Mayweather would have fought Paul the Punisher Williams? I'm glad you asked that question. Paul the Punisher Williams erroneously was compared to Thomas Hearns. No, they were two different fighters. Thomas Hearns fought tall with one of the greatest jabs in boxing history. You had to get past that jab to get to him and you had to slug slug with him a guy like Floyd Mayweather could have never beaten a guy like Thomas Hearns because no one ever outboxed Thomas Hearns and Floyd's not out slugging Hearns because if Floyd tried that shit that Sugar Ray Leonard did he'd get put to sleep with that right cross by Thomas Hearns Paul Williams never fought tall Paul Williams fought to your size he would brawl with you like he brawled with Antonio Margarito um perfect example when he fought Sergio Martinez in two fights the first fight I thought Martinez won they gave Williams a decision second fight he put 
Paul to sleep with one shot in the second round, one of the greatest knockouts in boxing his boxing history. Well, I don't think Floyd knocks out Paul Williams. I think because Paul Williams didn't fight tall, his jab was non-existent, if mediocre. He brawled a lot. He fought to your size. Floyd, one of the greatest counterpunches in boxing history, would have been landed all day, making Paul miss. Paul would be exhausted by the sixth, seventh round, and Floyd would win a convincing, unanimous decision. Despite the fact that Paul Williams was seven inches taller than Floyd, he wouldn't use that height advantage. He wouldn't use it to his advantage. Now, on to a longtime friend of mine, longtime listener, Luigi Pelosi. He emailed me a couple of questions. Let me find it. Where you at, big man? All right, here we go. Here we go. First question. He is torn between Arguello and Chocolatito as Nicaragua's greatest. What do you think? Arguello won, Chocolatito two. Chocolatito never beat a great fighter like a Ruben Oliveras, like Alexis Arguello did. Chocolatito, like, was at one point the best fighter in the world, and Chocolatito beat a lot of good fighters. Uh, Estrada. But Chocolatito lost twice to a Sor Rungvisai. Arguello would have never lost to a fighter like a Sor Rungvisai. Arguello had a better left jab than, than Chocolatito. Now, Chocolatito was a much better inside fighter than Arguello because he had to be. He was short for his for 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 his uh for his uh weight class. While Arguello at 126, 130, 135, even 140 was tall for those divisions. Arguello had the better jab. Arguello was the better power puncher. Uh, Arguello and Chocolatito both had similar st- stamina. They'd be as fresh in the last round as they were in the first round. Both Arguello and Chocolatito would, would have problems against guys that moved a lot. But Arguello beat the greater fighters. He beat a Ruben Al- Oliveras. He cleaned up the junior lightweight division. All right, uh, at lightweight, he beat Jim Watt. How many fighters did Chocolatito beat that were better than Jim Watt? Now, and there's no disgrace that Arguello lost twice to Aaron Pryor because, in my opinion, Aaron Pryor is the greatest 140-pound fighter of all time, and he gave Pryor more problems than any junior welterweight in Pryor's entire reign as junior welterweight king. Arguello won Chocolatito, too, in my opinion, Luigi. And now Luigi asked a question that I, you know, right, my, right in my wheelhouse. Rank, rank these male voices. This is this is a music question. Teddy, Marvin, Luther, Lionel, and Nat King Cole in your order of preference. I I told this I told him this offline, so I'll tell the listeners. I've never been passionate about Nat King Cole, so he's fifth on my list. Not saying he's not a great voice. Nat King Cole's all time great. He's he, Legend. I'm more passionate about his daughter, Natalie, than I'm about Nat King Cole. Nat King Cole is not my type of soul singer. Nat King Cole was a great singer. Um, Unforgettable, one of the greatest songs of all time. The, the remastered duet that his daughter re-recorded and they won a Grammy for in 1992, a sensational song. But Natalie Cole, his daughter, sang more contemporary soul music while Nat King Cole was coming out the blues and standards era.
but that's why I would put him fifth. But that's no knock because the other guys you mentioned here I'm passionate about and are legends. Teddy Marvin Luther Lionel. Wow. I'll put Lionel fourth. Lionel Richie, especially with the Commodores, great singer-songwriter, great pianist. Um, the man was the king of the ballads. From the mid-'70s with the Commodores until 1986 when he took a break from music for six years, Lionel Richie, first with the Commodores, then as a solo, solo artist, wrote and had hit after hit after hit after hit. Lionel was that dude. Beautiful voice, beautiful tenor, and some incredible songs. Um, truly, truly is a great song. His duet with uh, Diana Ross, Endless Love, one of the greatest duets in the history of soul music. Uh, I know Luther Reed did it. It's not a pimple on Lionel's ass, and I'm sorry. And I love Luther and Mariah, but they should have left it alone. Now... Talk about a tough threesome. Now, this is tough. Five and four were easy for me. And I'm passionate about, about Lionel. But Lionel is not as powerful a singer as the next three. Luther, Marvin, and Teddy. I'm going to put Teddy number one. He's, Teddy is my favorite of the five. And Teddy, in my opinion, is the greatest baritone in the history of music. That voice was so powerful. And Luigi, you know this because you're a big Teddy fan. After his car accident, he came back and he was able to modify his voice through the help of his doctor, even though he's paralyzed from the neck down. And he almost captured the full power of his voice. It's hard to do. And that alone... I give him number one. Now, as far as Luther and Marvin go, that's 2A and 2B. I can't choose between those two guys, man. Luther is the king of the smoothness. I mean, just greatest singer ever to come out of New York City. Greatest singer ever to come out of the Bronx, period. And there's been a lot of great singers that came from New York City. Luther's number one. I don't want to hear about anybody else. Marvin Gaye's the greatest singer to ever come out of Washington, D.C. And Teddy Pendergrass, the greatest singer to ever come out of Philadelphia, period. Uh, and Marvin, Marvin and Luther, probably, Luigi, have the two smoothest voices in the history of soul music. Great question, Luigi. I could talk all day about, the, uh, about Luther, Marvin, and Teddy. And that ends the Q&A session of the podcast. And now we go to my 13th greatest fight in the last 45 years, uh, Luigi's favorite fight of all time, Roberto Durant. And I want a disclaimer, Luigi, I just want to tell you real quick that even though he's number 13 on my last 45 years, if it was the last 50 years, Luigi, he'd have been my number one. The reason he's number 13 was because my – uh. This this list begins in 1977, so is missing the first five years when he was possibly the greatest fighter that ever lived from 1972 to 1977. So you you have to subtract that, and then from the night he quit against Sugar Ray Leonard in 1980 up until all those fights at the end, he had no business fighting. That also detracts, and when you see the rest of my list, 12 to one. You'll see why 
I've got Durant at 13. But I, if Luigi, if you think Durant belongs higher on this list, I'm not going to argue with you because anywhere from three to three to three to 15, you can interchange these fighters. That's how close close these fighters were. But if you include if it was the last 50 years, and the reason I didn't do the last 50 years is because I didn't start watching boxing until 1977. So I'm going from the from when I started, 77 till now. But if it was 72 to now, Durant's number one, period, end of story. Now, let's get on to my article I wrote on the 13th greatest fighter, in my opinion, in the last 45 years, Roberto Duran. In the history of boxing, there was never a fighter who combined ring IQ, fearlessness, technical technical skill and savagery better than the Panamanian legend Roberto Duran. Duran, like the mass, like the vast majority of great fighters, grew up in impoverished conditions. As an adolescent, he engaged in street fights with grown men on the streets of Panama City for meager change. This led to Duran turning pro after only 32 amateur fights at the tender age of 16. With the guidance of wealthy Panamanian millionaire Carlos Eleta as his manager, Duran's hunger and savagery inside the ring saw him destroy everyone thrown at him in Panama. Eleta then brought Manos de Piedra to the United States and in his 25th fight, Duran destroyed lightweight contender Benny Huertas in only 66 seconds. This fight took place in the hollowed Madison Square Garden, and immediately Duran caught the eyes of boxing fans and the media. Around this time, Duran hooked up with two trainers who would refine his skill, Ray Arcel and Freddie Brown. They would bring both discipline and fatherly figures, two huge gaps in the then 20-year-old Panamanian Dynamo's life. It would all come to fruition on June 26, 1972, just 10 days after Durant's 21st birthday when he stopped WBA 135-pound champion Ken Buchanan to become a world champion for the first time. Fast forward five years later, and after successfully defending against two excellent but light-hitting fighters in the Dominican Villamar Fernandez and the Puerto Rican Edwin Viret in 1977, Duran was increasingly having problems making 135. He had an extreme bad habit of gaining 50 to 60 pounds between fights due to excessive eating and partying. Duran decided to fight one more time in an attempt to become the undisputed lightweight champion of the world. That fight occurred in Las Vegas on January 21st, 1978 against the WBC champion and the only man at the time to ever defeat him, Esteban de Jesus. Unlike their first two meetings, de Jesus decided to stand and slug with Durant. There has never been a lightweight fighter in existence who could defeat Durant in a slugfest. Durant batted de Jesus for 12 rounds before de Jesus' corner threw in the towel after Durant dropped him twice. Just a few months later, Durant vacated both belts and in the greatest reign in lightweight history. Durant reigned as 135-pound champion for six years and 12 successful defenses. And at the age of 27, it was time for him to move up in weight and justify my ranking him the 13th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. A week before his June 22, 1979 Madison Square Garden fight with former 175-pound world champion Carlos Palomino, Duran appeared with Larry Holmes at a Don King, New York City Central Park press conference that was open to the public. My father took me and my five-year-old sister to see Duran and Holmes speak. At the time, I was only 11 years old. After the press conference ended, my father tried to get Holmes' attention. Holmes completely ignored my father as he left the rest of the huge crowd with his entourage. Duran saw Holmes ignore my father and walked over to us. 
Pop and Duran engaged in a lively five-minute conversation in Spanish about boxing. Duran then took a picture with my father's Polaroid camera with my sister and I and autographed the back of it. It was one of the many mementos I would lose when the tenement we lived in the Bronx burned to the ground 16, 16 months later. To see my father glowing while talking to one of the greatest fighters of all time is a memory I'll never forget. Durant's performance against Palomino one week later saw Durant using his underrated boxing skills at his highest level. Durant uncharacteristically used movement and pinpoint counterpunching to thoroughly outbox the Mexican slugger to win a decisive 10-round decision. A year later, on June 20th, 1980, Durant would challenge the undefeated biggest star in boxing, Sugar Ray Leonard, for Leonard's WBC welterweight title. There have only been a handful of times that the consensus two best fighters in the world have faced each other. One of those times occurred that evening in Montreal. Heading into his fight against Leonard, Duran had amassed an incredible record of 71 wins against only one defeat. Leonard himself was undefeated in 27 fights. There was incredible bad blood coming into this fight on both sides. Duran felt that Leonard was an overrated pretty boy. Leonard was livid at the fact that Duran made several derogatory comments to both him and his wife during the press tour promoting the fight. Duran was the master of psychological warfare. Through his comments, he baited Leonard into fighting his fight. My father took me to see this fight at the same Puerto Rico theater in the South Bronx as several of the other closed circuit fights he, we would see throughout the 1980s. As usual, for a closed circuit showing at this venue, over 90% of the audience were Hispanic. It goes without saying that the place was almost entirely rooting for Duran. What was more amazing was that the site the actual fight took place in, Montreal, and the over 40,000 fans in attendance at Olympic Stadium were predominantly in favor of Duran. Leonard had been the darling of the 1976 Summer Olympics that were held in Montreal. Despite this fact, when the fight began, the Montreal fans were firmly behind the Panamanian superstar. The first round saw both fighters feel each other out. There was almost no lateral movement by Leonard. Leonard's style was reminiscent of Sugar Ray Robinson and Muhammad Ali. He would dance, move, and land like rapid-like combinations. Against Duran in round one, he stayed in the pocket and tried to box Duran without, without any lateral movement. In round two, Duran landed a booming right cross left hook combination that badly staggered Leonard. Leonard didn't get back to moving. Instead, he stayed inside at, and held as much as possible while clearing his head. For the next five rounds, Leonard engaged Duran in a phone booth war, which was Duran's forte. Duran blasted Leonard with several hard hooks to the body. Duran was able to smother Leonard's patented combinations while both were inside. Round eight was the first round in which Leonard dominated Duran. He used movement for the first time, which allowed him to land several combinations and keep Duran from smothering those same shots. Leonard was unable to keep this momentum going in the next three rounds as Duran was able to use his jab to get inside Leonard and once again punish him to the body. Leonard was visibly tired, a result of the punishment he had taken the entire fight. My father, who had put big money on Duran to win the fight, told me after the 11th round that the only way Leonard was going to win was by robbery. He reminded me that Duran had a granite chin and his stamina was second to none.
Round 12 saw Duran land several hard hooks to both Leonard's head and body. The 13th round was the best round of the fight, as both men stood toe-to-toe and landed bombs to both each other's head and body. The 14th was more of the same, as it had become an all-out war. The Puerto Rico theater was rocking, with people screaming at every exchange. Going into the 15th round, Leonard had to know he needed a knockout. Only no one back then could hurt Duran, never mind knock him out. Leonard easily won the 15th round as he fought in desperation, while Duran mocked Leonard as he felt he had to fight in the bag. Duran won the decision and Leonard's title. His celebration, however, would be short-lived. On November 25, 1980, Duran and Leonard fought an immediate rematch at the New Orleans Superdome. My father took me to see this fight on the closed-circuit screen at Madison Square Garden. This time, Leonard utilized the superior speed and footwork to thoroughly frustrate Duran. Duran was unable to engage inside, the sugar, inside against the sugar man. As a result, Duran grew increasingly frustrated to the point where towards the end of the eighth round, Duran quit. As a result, the fight has gone down in boxing law as the no mas fight. Immediately after the fight ended, boxing fans and writers blasted Duran. The ultimate warrior did the unfathomable. In the, did the unfathomable in quitting in the middle of a fight. Duran was even ostracized in his own Panamanian homeland. When Duran did resume his boxing career, he looked listless in back-to-back losses against Wilfred Benitez and Kirkland Lang. Going into 1983, for all intents and purposes, the 31-year-old Duran seemed completely done as an elite boxer. 1983 was Duran's year redemption. The year began with Duran putting former world 147-pound champion Pepino Cuevas out to pasture with a fourth-round destruction. This win resulted in Duran getting a shot at the 24-year-old Bronx WBA 154-pound champion Davey Moore at Madison Square Garden on June 16, 1983. This was supposed to be Moore's coming-out party as a legit boxing star. Instead, the exact opposite occurred. That night, my father took me to MSG to see what we both thought would finally be the end of Duran's career. We were in absolute shock as Duran, on the night of his 32nd birthday, turned back the clock and giving one of the greatest performances of his illustrious career. By the fourth round, Moore's right eye was completely shut as he was unable to fend off Duran's savage offensive assault from the opening. After finally knocking down Moore in the seventh round, Duran would stop the Bronx champion in the following round to win a WBA junior middleweight title and become a three-division champion. Despite fighting in Moore's backyard of Madison Square Garden, Duran had damn near the entire sold-out 20,000 fans in the arena heavily rooting him on. When referee Ernesto Magana stopped the fight in round eight, the garden was the loudest I've ever heard in the arena as they cheered in unison, in unison for Duran's victory. They even started singing Happy Birthday, Roberto. Still one of the greatest comeback stories in boxing history. Duran ended his career-defining 1983 by challenging Marvelous Marvin Hagler for Hagler's undisputed middleweight title on November, 12, on November 10th, 1983. In one of the toughest fights of his phenomenal career, Hagler barely defeated the rejuvenated Duran by a, split, by a slim unanimous decision. 
going into the 15th and final round. Two of the three judges had to fight dead even. Hagler delivered one of the best rounds of his career and completely dominating that round to retain his title. Despite the loss, Duran was as marketable as ever as a fighter. He would immediately sign to fight the WBC 154-pound champion Thomas Hearns on June 15, 1984 in what would potentially be the biggest fight in the history of that division as well as a unification title fight. Going into the fight, Hearns was the WBC 154-pound champion, and Duran was the WBA champion. Unfortunately, the fight was not a unification title fight, as the WBA stripped Duran for his refusal to fight the number one contender, Mike McCollum. I never understood this, as McCollum was under Emmanuel Stewart's tutelage, just like Hearns was. The fight would lead to a breakup between McCollum and Stewart. Despite the WBA stripping Durant of the title, everyone in boxing agreed that this would be the crowning of the real world junior middleweight champion. When the night was over, there wasn't a doubt in anyone's mind who the true 154-pound champion was. That night, my father took me to Master Square Garden to watch this fight on closed circuit, almost exactly a year to the day that Durant had knocked out Moore in resurrecting his career. The MSG crowd was overwhelmingly rooting for Durant, and my father who, like myself, had both learned to love Hearns as our favorite fighter at that time, was taunting all the Duran fans around us. I tried to calm him down, but Pop wouldn't shut up. He even coaxed three Duran fans into betting him $50 that Duran would win. They had a better chance of winning the lottery. Round one, round one saw exactly what Pop and I expected to happen. Hearns came out fighting Duran the same way he fought Pepino Cuevas four years earlier pumping his left jab and walking Duran down. He dropped Duran twice in the opening stanza, and when the round ended, Duran walked towards the wrong corner. Pop and I were laughing outrageously at everyone around us. By this point, I was so excited by what my idol was doing in the ring that I no longer cared what the Duran fa fans thought. After one, round one, they had become very silent. The second round was more the same, with Hearns battering a helpless Duran. Less than a minute into the round, Hearns landed a spectacular right cross that resulted in the Panamanian legend falling face first to the canvas. Referee Carlos Padilla immediately waved off the fight, and Duran's handlers had to pick Duran's lifeless body off the canvas. The three men who bet my father threw the money at him and ran off. On our subway ride home, Pop and I were laughing our asses off about the fools he sucked into betting him. After the Hearn fights, after the Hearns fight, Duran won seven of his next eight fights to secure a WBC World Middleweight title fight against Iran Barkley. Barkley had won the title by shockingly knocking Hearns out in the third round back in June of 1988. The 28-year-old Barkley was a definitive favorite over the 38-year-old Duran. Many felt this would be the final nail in Duran's coffin. Duran had other plans the night of February 25, 1989. The fight started off surprisingly as a boxing match between the two fighters. Barkley was a fierce brawler with power in both hands. Barkley was six foot one and towered over the five foot seven Duran, similar to how Hearns towered over Duran. The native of my South Bronx stomping grounds attempted to use his reaching height in the first round. For the majority of round one, Barkley outboxed Duran by using a very good left jab. With less than ten seconds left in the round, Duran hurt Barkley with a surprising right cross. Rounds two and three saw Barkley continue to box from the outside and land his jab and several hooks to the Panamanian legend's midsection. The fourth round finally saw the expected slugfest as both men landed several hard power shots throughout the round.
They fought inside for the next four rounds, with Barkley stunning Duran in rounds seven and eight with tremendous left hooks. Duran showed his legendary chin by quick, quickly recovering, and although Barkley was hammering him, Duran was able to land hard right hands of his own. After eight rounds, Barkley was ahead on all three scorecards. Duran needed to win the last four rounds of the fight to win the decision. Remarkably, Duran came storming back and outslugged the very fatigued Barkley throughout rounds 9 through 11. Barkley's left eye was almost completely shut, the result being that he couldn't see Duran's overhand right. Late in the 11th round, Duran landed three crushing right crosses out of a five-punch combination that knocked down the champion. Barkley got up but was now hurt, fatigued, and fighting with essentially one eye going into the 12th and final round. As expected, both men gave whatever they had left in the final round. Duran landed several clean right crosses. Barkley had nothing left on his punches due to both fatigue and the amount of punishment he took, especially during the latter part of the fight. Duran had done what he needed to do in winning the last four rounds of the fight, earning him a split decision victory in the WBC middleweight title. Duran was now a four-division world champion. Once again, Duran had risen from the ashes of what seemed to be a dead career. Duran would then fight Leonard in a third and deciding fight on December 7, 1989. In one of the most abysmal super fights of all time, my father and I again sat in MSG to watch the final fight between two members of the legendary Four Kings on closed circuit. The Four Kings being Duran, Hearns, Leonard, and Hagler. Leonard easily won a 12-round decision in a fight that was the final coffin in both legendary fighters' storied careers. Over the next 11 years, Duran would fight 26 more times, winning 18 of those fights before finally retiring at the age of 50 after losing to Hector Camacho on June 14, 2001. Duran's legacy included winning world titles in four divisions and being universally viewed as the greatest Latin fighter who ever lived. Between 1977 and 1989, he accomplished more than enough to solidify being the 13th greatest fighter of the last 45 years. Ladies and gentlemen, it was my honor again and my privilege to talk to you great people. Uh, contact me on Twitter at RobertSilva5768 for any questions. Ask Rob Silva, A-S-K-R-O-B-S-I-L-V-A, hashtag Ask Rob Silva. Until next week, be blessed and be a blessing.